I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. COVID allowed the opportunity for us to exit three stores that I never would have for business reasons. And in doing so, you're liberated. It's so funny how finally at 42, I realized that doing more good stuff, less junk, that's the biggest liberation. And I find my biggest liberation when I don't say yes to deals that I historically would have said yes to because on paper, they penciled out. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Just because your last restaurant was a hit doesn't mean that the next one will be. And as restaurateurs, we spend a lot of time after a closure trying to figure out what went wrong. And through trial and error, some of us are lucky enough to parse out a recipe for consistent success. John Meadow of the prolific restaurant group LDV has done just that. In today's conversation, we discuss the elements he's put together to ensure that the next restaurant opens more successfully than the last. My problems have nothing to do with me and Cornell. They have everything to do with me and my hubris and my <laughs> arrogance and entitlement and all the other stuff that I had, particularly as a 22-year-old. I think that I was smart enough to do well in coursework. Cornell gave me a business acumen that I was able to go and raise money. That's the sad reality is that everyone wants to own a restaurant. Okay, where do you get the capital from? That first 1.2 million bucks to open the first bar, where does it come from? And it has to come from other people if you don't have it. I didn't have it. And Cornell gave me the tools to write the business plan and the acumen to go forward and create. Those tools were invaluable. My hubris that I'm finally starting to mature at the right age of 42. <laughs> Same. <laughs> it was only ever about creating the restaurant as if like getting to opening night was the ultimate goal. At some point, having done it 30 plus times now, inclusive of many failures, you realize that opening goal is the day it starts. Right. And there's a whole nother world of not just business sense, but really emotion and heart and everything else that is required to make it a success. So again, it's not about, you can't, the, yes, circumstance is profound and the impact. My circumstances allowed me to get to opening night over and over. Thankfully, really failure and learning from failure and most importantly, having wonderful people around me I finally, at some point, realized how to get past opening night and to build something. Let's dive deep into real-world experience. So after Cornell, you're managing the Oak Room. You ran uh, the beverage program at the Plaza. And looking back on those experiences for myself, like I was so excited to start my own thing, not really appreciating how valuable it is to learn with other people's money. Um, 100%. Which is the best. Talk to me about how those roles prepared you to take the entrepreneurial leap. 
Well, I think what they did is they pushed me, right? So my first job out of school was there at the plaza. Just taking a step back, my first job was a dishwasher at Avon Penn. And for some sick reason, I loved it. And then I knew this business was going to exist. My first internship at Cornell was for Danny Meyer at the time. It opened Tobolin 11 Madison Park. And then I was like, wow, bright lights, big city. This is what I want to do. And that first job was at the plaza. I think in all of those circumstances, I maintained my passion for the industry and for people. What I really got from the plaza, as much as I was grateful to be a part of an institution, it was very apparent that it wasn't going to satiate my entrepreneurial, somewhat self-absorbed desire to create. So I went out on my own and I opened a bar with other partners and, and kind of went down that path. But I think what I did get from that plaza experience, unlike an internship or a summer job, when it's your life, when there's no end in sight, when you're working Christmas Eve, the room service overnight shift with these older gentlemen from some part of the world, that, you know, because all these little separate mafias. So the Greeks controlled room service. The palm court was all the Bengali. So you're learning your way through all these different people. This is not a trial run. This is not a class. It's not, it's not a case study. This is your life. And you live in that shitty little apartment because you can't afford anything else. And you're not with your family on Christmas Eve. And these are the people that you spend your time with. And for me, again, that was the first time experiencing it in real life. And as dark and screwed up and wacky as it was, I loved it, right? So for me, it furthered the conviction that I like being around these interesting restaurant pirate types of people. And this is what I want for my life. At the same time, the union dynamic, 100-year-old institution at the time owned by foreign capital, how much impact was I going to make? And I wanted to create. So that pushed me onto my entrepreneurial path. You know what's funny? If I look back on my career and memories... I remember every day of that two years. I used to dream of these characters and I still see them around town. And it's just like, it was the most indelible, impressionable period in my career. And I'm very grateful for it. And then you make the entrepreneurial leap and we start with the bar and then we're able to move into Scarpetta. But there was a big failure in between that I should. Let's talk about it. Yeah, let's unpack it. So the bar was easy enough. It was very, I had wonderful old, more mature partners and I was kind of the operating partner. I was able to raise some capital and it was a very simple, honest formula and it made real money. The problem was it didn't satiate what I think was part passion, part taste, part ego, all of the above, some pro and some con. And I wanted to go downtown and do something cool. And we did. We built a restaurant called Gin Lane in the Meatpacking District. It was the old Village Idiot space. I grew up playing Beirut there in high school. And then we did this massive undertaking from a construction perspective to create this downtown, cool, funky restaurant. And it was all of those things, but we didn't have the appropriate capital. And I didn't know construction. And all of a sudden, before opening, I was completely underwater. I had bit off way more than I could chew. I was in toxic partnership across the board. And this thing was frankly destined for ruin before we even started. And in that, the most indelible moment was, I'll never forget this. Here I am, fortunate enough to have gone to Cornell, fortunate enough to have schooled in real life setting at the most famous hotel in New York, fortunate enough to have been able to raise money and say, I own something at 24 years old. And then at 25 years old, I'm bouncing paychecks for line level, hardworking, innocent people. That was the lowest low in my life. I'm sorry, Mr. John, yeah, my paycheck for $317 bounced and I can't make rent, right? instantly, as flawed as I am, I have a lot of empathy for others and I care about, I know that I, I have a profound love of people. That's why I'm here in this industry. I knew clear as day, there is no nobility in that failure, especially when it impacts others. And therefore, 
I took this onus on me from that point on to try to take the business side of it, and not just the romance, seriously. And I've had subsequent failures, but hopefully each time learning from those failures and just being more focused on a pragmatic business reality. There's a balance between art and commerce. Too many restaurant pirates playing with other people's money don't give a damn about the commerce, and then they can have the most beautiful art form in the world. The difference between Picasso hanging in the MoMA is he painted it and it sits there forever and just increases in value. And by the way, he's a genius. For so many of us in the restroom, I'm not a genius. I just work hard and love what I do. When it's over because of financial failure, it's over. And it might have been wonderful, but you're screwing with people's lives. There's an onus to produce in this very tough business. And I think I learned that at an early age. And it really made me a more humble person that, again, I made more mistakes. But from that point on, I've been able to put others in front of me. And that's important. Failure, especially in your 20s, it feels like the end of the world. It's this, how am I going to overcome this thing? It's no different than like your first breakup in high school, right? Like, how am I ever going to overcome this obstacle? How has your relationship with failure evolved over the years? Because again, we said it at the top of this conversation, it is very ebb and flow in this industry. And something that was a winner in 2019 isn't in 2020. So how do you view failure? How do you work with it and through it as an entrepreneur? It's tough. The reality of the financial scorecard of investors' money, the bank's money, my wife and my kids' money, because I have to produce for my family, the line-level staff, I view that as very real, right? It's not enough for me. It was a great restaurant. And nor is it about greed. It's about not losing capital that I and people around me cannot afford to lose. So that part never feels good. It never feels good, ever. At the same time, failure is our greatest tutor, and it's our greatest teacher that we'll ever have. And I think being open to truly analyzing and digesting and committing to never repeating the same mistakes is fundamental. And my risk profile as I've gotten older and maybe a little wiser, it's it's just not the same. I'm a lot more risk averse. And it's not that I choose commercial success over my art and passion. It's I'm committed to finding the appropriate balance because I realize If no passion for the art, transactional restaurants, in my history, they haven't worked for me, period. So enough. The next developer selling me the next bag of rocks crap because they think they have a fancy toy and really it's not. Let's not even talk. Just doing restaurants out of pure passion because I want to create X. If it doesn't suit our business model, I have a responsibility. 1,300 people wear an LDV jersey. I can't do it. So I think that Failure is the ultimate teacher. It doesn't mean it tastes good. I don't want to repeat my mistakes. And it is part of the compass. And I think I would have a lot more successes going forward if I hadn't learned from my failures. But those three successes would also come with another 10 failures. And I don't want to live that anymore. Right. So it's a funny thing. It's easy to say in baseball, if you bat 300 and go three for 10, you're in the Hall of Fame. Right. I'll do the same for the restaurant business. Okay. I just don't want to do it anymore. I want to be in the restaurant business. I don't want that level of pressure and chaos. So I'd rather do less, be more steadfast, and confront less failure in my life. I know there's going to be more. We know that. But let it be a new failure and let it be one that I can afford and mitigate it. Well, and looking at the success out in front of you, I think requires that you have to spend a lot of time looking behind you. Yeah. When you look at the initial opening of the first Scarpetta location, what did you do right? What did you double down on? What are the consistent things that you did in that first opening that you continue to do today? 
funny enough, it was the same location where I had my first failure that put me almost bankrupt. Right. <laughs> right. The, the blessing there, the first three words I heard at Cornell Hotel School was location, location, location. Sounds corny. It's the truth. That first deal, the silver lining was the location at 14th and 9th in the meatpacking district with an undervalued lease that we signed up before Apple, before anything in that neighborhood, allowed me the opportunity to bring in new capital and have a fresh start, clean up the balance sheet, get out of my debt and go forward. So I think that we got the location right. And that was very powerful. At the time, we also put together an extraordinary, extraordinary team of people. That team was extraordinary. And the leader in the back is still my chef and partner, Jorge Espinoza. And, and you know, we've had a lifetime together. But location, people, and the financial reality is we opened that restaurant very prudently. We didn't really have a real designer. We didn't really have an outsourced GC. To be blunt, we took a failed restaurant. We put another 350000 into it. We opened the restaurant, Square Pen, in 2008 that was nominated for the James Beard Foundation Best in the Restaurant in the Country. Fast forward 14 years later, the next one that we're opening in Doha, Qatar, probably cost, I don't know, 15x. Mm -hmm. to build David Collins studio out of London, big fancy production, but you don't have to buy and spend gilded money to create something. There's no doubt luck is important, but people, location, and financial prudency go a long way. So let's talk one to two. When did you know it was ready to open another restaurant? I'm the last person on the planet to ask that question to <laughs> Next round of failure in my life. My next round of failure, I went from cocky jerk to overly reactionary and opportunistic and not strategic. So it was the next time to open a restaurant when the Fountain Blue in Miami came a knocking and gave us the opportunity. Then the next one was when the Cosmopolitan came in Las Vegas. I spent, let's call it, after that first success, from 2009 through 16, seven years, not once did I say, hmm, where do I want to open a restaurant? The phone would ring, meaning not being proactive, me being reactive, and opportunities presented. And we took them. We took too many of them, not just Scarpetta, with other brands, et cetera. Scarpetta has always kind of been our most successful. And if I could rewrite that phase of my career, strategic, proactive growth defined by you and your internal compass, whatever it may be, I think in many ways is more prudent than just reacting to what the universe gives us. You have to react. You have to be willing to engage. But having a plan, even if it changes, is not such a bad thing. And I never had a plan until 2017 when I realized that I had made some mistakes that I had to clean up. Now, you've opened a lot of restaurants in hotels. Yep. Do you like that model? Do you think that that kind of satiates the demand engine, takes some of the lift and the onus off the restaurant? 100%. That's when we got a plan, 2017, and we refocused our energies into hotel F&B. And if you said, okay, John, where do you live? I live in New York City. What restaurant should I go to? Indochine, Balthazar, Raul's, and the Odeon. None of them are in hotels. None of them feel like big, boring, corporate, sterile, typical hotel branded by committee, blah, 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 industry, vanilla corporate restaurants. They're as real as it gets. And the food is not the primary point. The primary point is the authenticity and the grit and sure. the magic that is the New York night, right? I understand that. And that's what I look for when I travel, etc. Hotel food and beverage. And by the way, those four restaurants that have been around for 25, 30 years, 
a one in a million. Yeah. And maybe I'm not that smart. And I'm okay with that because I have mouths to feed and people that rely on me. Hotel food and beverage is a wonderful opportunity on so many levels to find balance between art and commerce. So specifically, the hotel, unlike the freestanding landlord, every freestanding landlord says, oh, I want your restaurant. It's a good amenity for my blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, pay me. At the end of the day, <laughs> if the hotel doesn't serve breakfast, how do they get their four or five-star award? They actually need us. In the hotel environment where today no one wants to go to the big corporate hotel restaurant, they want to go to real restaurants that happen to reside in a hotel, right? So the hotelier, the developer, the owner, they need us. In that need, they give us economics that makes sense to us. It's not about greed. It's about having something for 10, 20 years. So the market is that in New York City, you should be able to afford $150 a foot in freestanding rent and $100 a foot in TI. It costs $1,000 a foot to open a business in New York City, right? What kind of a restaurant can actually support $150 a foot? One in 100. Why should I sign up for that failure rate? Sure. Because I have a dollar and a dream? I'm not a kid anymore, right? In the hotel, our basis is less. They take on the ownership of the construction, which I realize that I'm the worst contractor known to mankind because we're only good at one thing, which is restaurants. Same. Restaurants Same. and construction are completely different things, the execution of them. In the hotel, we get the restaurant, we get the bar, we get the banquets. So yes, the reason that we get to so our flagship, Scarpetta at the James Nomad in New York City, we got the deal because they wanted Scarpetta. We make the most money in banquets, which no one hears about, the second most amount of money in the bar, and then the lost leader is the restaurant that carries a payroll of $125,000 a week in payroll. I love the restaurant. I don't tend the banquets. No one wants me at their party. They don't know who I am, but that's where we make our money. So the point is, in the hotel, you have multiple revenue streams with one consolidated effort and team. You get three businesses for the price of one and a half, and somebody else largely capitalized that business. Even if it's a pure leasehold where we have real exposure, we pay a monster rent with big personal liability there. But the math makes sense for us. And apart from business, on a most basic human level, I am passionate about pasta, wine, and people. I do not understand, nor do I care to learn how HVAC works. <laughs> so let someone else do that, and I'll worry about sure. pasta. And at the end of the day, Malcolm Gladwell, the outlier, you know, 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, I've dedicated my life to restaurants. Restaurant and construction are two separate things, and our company is not big enough to have in-house construction engineers, et cetera, so as to be able to do it. I don't think I want to manage that aspect anyway. So hotel really represented an area to find balance between passion, art, commerce, and develop something thoughtful. Is that why you segmented into other brands as well? That way you could facilitate that model more easily? No, doing other stuff and not just being Scarpetta restaurants was purely out of the passion to create. What we realize is in having done so did allow us to go to a big hotel and say, okay, we can also do your coffee bar because we've done right. it before. We can do your steakhouse. So right now we're talking about a deal in Mexico, Mexico City that wants American cut and Scarpetta in the same box. So now we can control all the F&B in that asset. So that has served us well. I look at your brands and they're so foundational. If I could go back and do it all over again, and I'm Southern, I was born and raised in Southern Louisiana. We were in every tier of dining in Los Angeles, but all of them were Southern inspired. Man, I would have gone Italian. 
I would have gone Mexican. I would have gone American Steakhouse. Just because it's a low-hanging fruit, there's high demand. There's endless demand. I don't know if it's true or not. I have a friend who's very successful. I won't say who he is in the restaurant space. And his pitch around the world is Italian is the number one consumed ethnic sure. cuisine on Mother Earth. And it kind of makes sense. You can it serve does. it everywhere. Louisiana, I think, that is the most beautiful, colorful culture in America. The scalability is not that of Italian food, simply put. It's not. It's niche. You want to give yourself the best chance you can at success. And to do that, it helps to serve a wide audience that is high demand. I'm curious to know, when I look at your go-to-market strategy, you've hit nowhere near hit market saturation in the U.S. And you're already expanding globally. Any concerns around that? What was the overall strategy to go global as opposed to doubling down in the U.S.? So we've been in six American markets with Scarpetta alone, and then we've had other concepts in maybe another three. I think that there are some markets whereby the restaurant truly is more about community than food or beverage. Now, if you're in the business of Starbucks, they can say whatever they want, but respectfully, I don't think people are going to Starbucks for a sense of community. They're going for the brand. They're going for a $3 transaction. At a full-service restaurant, average check 80 to 200 bucks, whatever that swing, it's different than going to Starbucks. And in certain markets, it is a lot more about the community than the product on the plate. I've had plenty of poor developmental decisions, markets where we should never have gone to. Not once, not once will I say that we had a shitty restaurant. We have exceptional people on our team. We have quality product. I didn't say we have the best restaurant. We don't produce junk. We produce beautiful spaces and our team busts them behind and work hard. And we've always been able to motivate and have what I find to be a quality product. But there are some markets, big markets, where there's a proven track record of outsiders coming in and it doesn't work. And we've lost big in those markets. That's where I've lost. New York, Miami, LA, Las Vegas, and I hear DC, although we've never done it. Those environments are cosmopolitan, they're transient, and simply put, no one ever says in those environments, is the owner here tonight? I'd like right. to say hello. Funny enough, those tough, big markets, you could argue that they're more of a meritocracy than other environments whereby it's all about community. And those community-centric restaurants, they're beautiful. And that is humanity and being a part of something. But I live in New York City. My kids, my life, my existence is there. You can't fake that. And therefore, we believe that going abroad to fully international is a better, that our restaurants will be more successful in Tokyo than in X. That's the community play. Now, there's another aspect of it whereby what we do with Say Scarpetta, it's not Italian, not Italian-American. I didn't say it was special. I just said we have our own language of cuisine. I think in a lot of American markets, there is a very defined expectation of what is Italian food and give the people what they want. And I think that, for instance, we don't have a meatball on the menu. We never will. If we did, it would be a very different restaurant. There's most American markets. You, if you open an Italian restaurant without a meatball on the menu, you're creating this. If we open in London, in Doha, in Rome, in Rio, in Tokyo, all of which we're doing, and there's no meatball on the menu, I guarantee you not a singular person says, where's the meatball? So it's about expectations paired with community-centric play. And 
frankly, Scarpetta is not, so you say Louisiana is not scalable enough, nor is Scarpetta, right? There's other concepts that I think really could play in a lot of American markets. As an example, Carbone, right? So mm-hmm. Carbone wants to be, they only want to do this and celebrity and blah, blah, blah. Okay, if it's all, then you can't go everywhere. But the Carbone menu could literally open in every single city in America, and I bet you they would crush it. Yeah, and I agree with you. And sense that they've now opened in Dallas. That totally makes sense. LDV, hospitality, stands for La Dolce Vita. Everybody gets into this industry for, I think, the same reason, at least from an entrepreneurial perspective, which is freedom, right? Every time you start a new business, the idea is, I want freedom. I want to be my own boss. I want to live my own life. I want to make my own decisions. I want to live that La Dolce Vita. And yet we don't, right? We all end up slaves to our locations and we end up working for all of the people that work for us. And and then it's just this endless grind and this vehicle to create freedom eventually becomes a prison. But you seem to have escaped that prison. Do you know how? I mean, you've mentioned your family multiple times. Have you achieved balance at 42? No, definitely not. I think that I have a lot of satisfaction but there isn't enough balance. And God bless my wonderful wife and two daughters. And I have a lot of regrets. And I don't get those precious times, right? My kids are 10 and 8, and I'm not having any more. It's over. And that infancy was amongst the craziest times in my career. So it's not all roses. I think that I'll tell you, so back to tying that into failure and the vehicle and freedom and failure, et cetera. I've been the most shackled spent the most time putting out the most toxic form of fires when I did reactionary deals, right? Opening in places that I shouldn't have, doing transactional restaurants that I wasn't emotionally vested in, in communities that frankly, I didn't have a desire to become truly a part of. Doesn't mean I didn't respect them. It just means my desire is to be with my family in New York City, right? At some point, where I'm better setting up my next 10 years, doing restaurants that I'm passionate about in places that I want to go to, that my team is motivated to be a part of. It's funny how I believe in snowball effects. And yes, I'm an emotional person. I can embellish a little bit. But the snowball effect for positive or negative is very real. The reality is us opening in Rome next year for a company called LDV after La Dolce Vita, which is a film that happened on this very street. This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we know. This is who we are. This is what our team wants to do. And therefore, there is something liberating because it's all speaking the same language. I'm bringing up a lot of different factors. Forgive me if it's not a straight-minded answer. But when you do good shit that counts, that you care about with focus and intention, and the people around you have the buy-in, I think you have better likelihood of success. Yes, it's a grind, but it's a joy. It's a pleasure. And the, your team is motivated. When the team is in, what's funny is, is it a grind? Of course it's a grind. I have found such satisfaction, empowering, motivating, and being around this team of exceptional individuals, all of which are more talented than me. The only difference is maybe I'm a better blah, blah, blah. And I have the fortunate reality that I put myself out in the world to do it for myself. But I could do nothing without them. And somehow it all gets better with the focus, intention, and the motivated team. So I think I'm on my way to the liberation, if you will, and enjoying being my own boss, as opposed to the shackles of putting out fires that I never should have started. And I say, I started 
No one on my team said, let's go do this project in this mall. That was all on me. And that's my right. failure. And getting out of that, that's part of the beauty of COVID. COVID allowed the opportunity for us to exit three stores that I never would have for business reasons. And in doing so, you're liberated. It's so funny how finally at 42, I realized that doing more good stuff, less junk, that's the biggest liberation. And I find my biggest liberation when I don't say yes to deals that I historically would have said yes to because on paper, they penciled out. I feel the same way. I don't know how to describe it other than you and I are the same age. The power of quitting, right? It's, Seeing a bad deal, right? It's so liberating. It's more powerful than winning. It is. Oh, for sure. To know you're seated in a bad deal and to just get yourself out of it, regardless of cost, this isn't working. It's never going to work. This is a prison. I don't like it. I'm out. It's never going to work. And you can try, 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 try. And the landlord will say obligation, obligation, obligation. Meantime, it's a fallacy. And the worst thing is you drag your team into it. That's what I finally realized that at the end of the day, no one, myself included, makes the same money as they would make in, say, Wall Street. We chose this for a reason. So if you chose this for a reason, what the hell are you doing transactional crap that you don't care about for? And the other issue is this, and it's something that I've diligently worked over the years to try and get out of is, you know, as a restaurateur, you find yourself, especially in the early days, but even where we are today, you find yourself saddled with doing things that you're just not good at. Right. But your career, your business, your company scales massively when all you focus on is what you're best in the world at. And by the way, the beauty of this crazy gig, what you're best in the world about the best in the world is probably that that you truly love. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's the snowball. Engage in the love. I was listening to this motivational speaker, and he was like, people will tell you to do what you're passionate about. Do you know what you're truly passionate about? What you're great at. <laughs> that is ultimately what it comes down to. And so you may be interested, slightly interested in this thing that it turns out you are really talented at. Right. And that talent will turn into passion. Over time. If you focus and engage in it, as opposed to diluting it elsewhere and spreading yourself too thin. And what's funny, back to your point about Cornell and and learning from failures and all of this, everything that we're speaking to now, I hope I can guide my children along the way. I learned through a very rocky course of self-experience, but I don't think that there's any education unlike failure and trying in order to learn these moments of wisdom and then hopefully having exposure to mentors with the wisdom and listening. How has mentorship played a role in your life? I've had one. How'd it go? His name is Lenny Chu. His real name is Sehun Chu. He's a Korean immigrant. He was a taxi driver in New York City. 1989, he opened the deli serving turkey sandwiches. I worked for him. He was my partner in that first bar that he had originally had the lease on. He today has about 20 locations, plus an additional three in Korea. He was the first ever Asian-American owner of an NBA basketball team. He's a partner in the Bucks, so he has the big diamond wow. ring to prove it. And I talked to him five days a week. He's the ultimate story of the American dream, and it's funny because he's uneducated. And he was a taxi driver. Now he owns a Bucks. He is the American dream, and he is the hard work and the shrewd and the balance of passion and commerce. And uh, he's been my ultimate teacher and he's guided me and the older I get the more I listen to him and it's wonderful for me to have that one person that he could say jump off the build I don't question him and it's amazing to have that so if you're in a position of leadership and at the end of the day to a degree I call my shots there is something quite refreshing of just giving yourself over to 
someone that you respect on that level and, and having that support network. So I'm very grateful for all that he's done for me. When you look forward, what are your goals personally and for LDV and where do those intersect? It's all one. I mean, it's all one life. The delineation between my work and personal is very much blurred. I'm really excited about the international. I'm excited to travel. I'm excited to have my family travel. I'm excited to grow our brand. So that's the immediate horizon. I think in general, I still am not smart or disciplined enough to say, okay, in five years, I'm doing this. In seven years, I'm doing that. In 10 years, I'm doing that. It's just not me and it's not my journey. I want to continue to create, but I want to do it holistically. And that's where they intersect. Right. So I think that funny enough, doing more in New York, I want to do a lot more in New York. I want to do more in Miami. I don't want to go to every single secondary tertiary American market. I would rather go and open in Mexico City. So I think that I delineate now also most of our international, it's much more franchise license based as opposed to fully operating. Right. So I joke with my team, it's either black and white, FUBU, for us, by us, New York, this is where we know bus boys. People say, why do you want to open in New York? Because I can go into any restaurant in New York City and say hello to a busboy. And the reality is, that's our business. Not where you can make a deal with some fancy landlord and get a bunch of money. Do you know a busboy? <laughs> do you know anyone in the Chamber of Commerce? Can you get people to engage in your restaurant? I can do that in New York City. New York's my home. I want to do more in New York. Or I want to go to the moon in a licensed scenario with a partner like Waldorf Astoria, Bulgari. Four Seasons, all of which are extraordinary operators, and let them deal with HVAC, accounting, HR, and all the other stuff, and have us solely focus on pasta, wine, service, and marketing. So it's a plan of the next 10 years, I want to grow aggressively, but holistically, and it's going to be either black or white. All in, absolute control, take risk and do it, or partnership with the right hotel partners in interesting exotic locations. The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think the key to the salvation of the restaurant industry is to encourage, motivate, and empower our staffs to make it a career. If we really give them those platforms and the foundation, and it's not too many get stuck in it. Too many, it's reactionary. If people come into our industry and say, this is what I want to do with my life. I'm committed to it and to the growth. And it's significant, but it costs money. But a 401k, I'm super embarrassed. We just rolled out ours this year. I've been in business since, for a long time, but in the current form of LDV for you know, 14, 15 years, and we've finally now done a 401k. And that's meaningful because I think it tells that line level employee, invest in your future, we'll match it. Here's effectively, not effectively, a 4% raise of tax incentivized dollars that let's be honest, most restaurants don't have it. We should have for our size years earlier. And I regret that we didn't in pre-COVID we wanted to, et cetera. But I think that those are the type of gestures that say to a line level employee that this is long-term, that we are your work family and this is your career. And I think if we do that as an industry, it becomes a lot more of a collective whole. It becomes less fractured. People are a lot more of a bond. That at the end of the day, I can say whatever I want. Being able to go to Cornell, whether you got a scholarship or you paid for it, it is an elitist luxury. But that bond that I don't find to be, I find to be far more genuine than elitist of commonality, it served me very well, right? That's where we started. Let's create that bond for this industry and line level people across the board. It's not easy to do, but let's truly democratize that passion for a career in hospitality. And I think we get better results. 
That's John Meadow. For more on his restaurants, visit ldvhospitality.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.